This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We turn now to the last major section of Genesis, the section pertaining to the sons of Israel, the generation of Joseph and his brothers. We will be looking at the entirety of Genesis 37. Here now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it 
And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal, and they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this, if you know whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive it. That as we look at this history of your family, we would see the history of redemption and how Joseph, even through his suffering, points us to Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we have seen in recent weeks some rather bleak and brutal times in the family history of God's people. We are seeing the presence and lingering and even multiplying of sins among them. And it's quite a laundry list. We've seen idolatry, blasphemy, mass murder, incest, this favoritism within the family. And that's just a start of the list. All of this within the people on whom God has chosen out of all the peoples of the earth to show his grace and set his name. And yet persistently, Perhaps in our view, even surprisingly, God has continued to love and help his people, even in distinction from others. Just last week, we saw the full and final breaking off of the Edomites, the house of Esau. 
their people would not belong to God's people. They would not be a part of the city of God. Now, this is not because they were worse, because they were less deserving based on the data we have in Scripture. The house of Jacob, the house of Israel, is just as evil and corrupt as anyone else, if not worse. But what this does tell us is that God's electing and saving grace comes unconditionally. It's not based on any merits or conditions met by the recipients. We're going to continue on in Genesis today, and we are going to see still more trouble and strife in the household of the faithful. And one might think after some of the things that we have seen and heard, there would be change. People would be learning their lessons. They would be repenting. They would be amending their ways. But that's not really happening all that much. We're going to see today more of Jacob's favoritism and the bitter fruit it produces among his sons. We're going to see one of Jacob's sons, in some ways it seems, lording over his brothers, his preferred position. We're going to see a murderous plot among the sons of Jacob against their brother. Of course, in all of this, God is still working. And even through this dark episode, through types and shadows, God shows forth the glory of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the redemption in Christ that is to come. That doesn't mean that it won't also point us to the depths of sin and human depravity. It is very clear how God's people are far from perfected, far from being free from sin even in this life, and yet we will see God's grace and the hope of Christ shown forth even in these dark days. So we'll look at this account of chapter 37 in three points. First, there is envy in verses 1 through 11. We see Jacob continue to play favorites among his children and the bitterness and resentment and trouble it stirs. And then we see how Joseph's dreams just stir this up all the more. And second, we see enmity in verses 12 through 24. The bitter seeds that were sown in the first part bear their bitter fruit in, their, in this plotting and retaliation that Joseph's brothers commit. And then third, we see exile in verses 25 through 36. What begins as a plot to murder turns into Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt. So envy, enmity, and exile, these are our points for this morning. So first we look at envy. In verses 1 through 11, we read in verse 1 that Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger. He's still a pilgrim. He still doesn't own this land. He's still dwelling there among a people not his own. We also get the last of these important transitional statements in Genesis. Your translation will say here something like, this is the history or these are the generations of Jacob. The Hebrew word for this is toledot, and it is by the structure of these various toledots that the book of Genesis is divided. So we're entering the last major division of Genesis. The life of Jacob has actually been told under the toledot of Isaac. It was Isaac's descendants. It was the story of Jacob and Esau that we have just finished as Isaac has now died. And so now we see the history of the house of Jacob. 
We read that Joseph is now 17 years old. Now, given the order of the birth of Jacob's sons that we were presented with before, Joseph would be the second youngest of Jacob's sons. He's only older than his younger brother, Benjamin, who was probably only about a toddler at this point. The commentators that I read said he was probably about two years old. But Joseph was the oldest son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite and beloved wife, who has now died. Jacob had never for a moment hid his favoritism towards Rachel over and against Leah and the maidservants by whom he also had children. And it seems that this favoritism also extends to the next generation. Not only did Jacob show favoritism among his wives, but he showed favoritism among his sons based on which wife they were born to. In fact, even as Joseph is the second youngest of his sons, we see that Jacob is placing him in something of a position of authority and supervision over his brothers. We see, for instance, in verses 1 and 2, that Joseph was tending sheep with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the maidservants, and that he brings back to Jacob a bad report of them. In other words, he was the one that was basically supervising them. He was the one that was to report to Jacob, the head of the household, how things were going among his sons, basically serving as a middleman. This puts him in a superior position over his brothers. Now, we don't know exactly what the content of this bad report that Joseph brought of his brothers, but given all the things we know so far about Jacob's family and even the conduct of Jacob's sons, it probably wasn't entirely undeserved. Then in verse 3, we get more background on Jacob, who is now throughout the text interchangeably referred to as Israel, that new covenant name that God has given him. And we see why there is this favoritism towards Joseph. It is not only that Joseph was Rachel's son, but he's also the son of Jacob's old age. And unlike the youngest son, Benjamin, Joseph was old enough to actually be working, to actually be helping in the family business. Now we see that despite all of the bitter fruit that Jacob's favoritism has borne before, that we've seen in Genesis, he still keeps doing it. We see that not only does Jacob give Joseph power and authority over his brothers, but he also gives them this coat. So Joseph's getting special gifts, special blessings from his father that his other brothers don't get. And predictably, this favoritism stirs hatred and resentment among the brothers. They could not speak peaceably to Joseph, we are told. They can't even talk to Joseph without their hatred and anger spilling over. While their problem probably should be with Jacob, they can't really do anything to Jacob. He's their father, and so they take it out on Joseph. And all this time, it doesn't seem that Jacob really knows or cares about any of this. If his sons are off in the field working most of the time and Jacob is trusting Joseph to supervise them and report on them, it means that Jacob is not himself very directly involved in the lives of his other sons. Now part of this could be age. The sons are all grown men, with the exception of Joseph and Benjamin, and Jacob is not as young or spry as he used to be. 
But it does also show more of Jacob's passivity, his unwillingness and inability to look out for the good of his family. Now, this resentment and hatred of Joseph are already a problem, but the problem gets worse when Joseph begins having these dreams. In the first dream, they were all working grain in the field together. The brothers were binding sheaves. And in that dream, Joseph's sheaves stood up and the brothers' sheaves bowed down to it, to Joseph's. Now, given what we already know about this relationship between Joseph and his brothers, it was perhaps not the wisest decision to tell his brothers about this dream. All these problems they are having, this will only make them worse. And yet, while it won't be fulfilled for quite a long time and through much trials and hardships, this dream is from God. It is prophetic. It is telling about things that are to come in the future. Just not in the way that anyone at that time would have known or expected. Perhaps at this point, some of the favoritism that Jacob had been showing to Joseph had gone to his head. He sees himself as a ruler over his brother's with a right to rule over them. And so even something like these dreams, he will declare it to his brothers as further proof that he is to rule over them. Now, these dreams are true, and Jacob is going to rule over his brothers, but it's going to be because of God's will and God's working. And of course, the revelation of this dream to the brothers just produces more of this bitterness and resentment. They cannot bear the thought that Joseph would rule over them. That's not entirely unreasonable. I mean, imagine you were in this situation. Let's say you had a much younger brother or a half-brother, and your father doesn't care that much about you. But he really, really, really cares about this younger brother, and he gives the younger brother everything and even lets your younger brother boss you around. Seems that your father is intent on letting your younger brother rule over you and the rest of the household. You probably wouldn't care much for that situation either. And this is in the ancient world. It's not like at that time people could just leave their family and the family business behind and go off and get another job or do something else with their lives away from the messy family situation. They were basically stuck with this. And then if that's all not bad enough and not going to stir enough hatred and bitterness, Joseph has another dream. In this dream, the sun and moon and eleven stars bow down to Joseph. So not only the brothers, but also Jacob and Leah. There is some question as to who was the moon in the dream. Rachel was dead. It likely is Leah, and Jacob is just referring to her as Joseph's mother because she was Jacob's last surviving legitimate wife. But Jacob comes to rebuke Joseph for this dream. It seems that it's a bridge too far for Joseph to say that not only will he rule over the brothers, but he will also rule over Jacob and Leah. For Jacob, now he's crossed a line. Of course, again, ultimately, this will all be proven true according to God's will and in God's timing. And yet it is also a bit presumptuous on Joseph's part in saying so at this point. 
And in verse 11, we see that the brothers are still more embittered and hateful and jealous of Joseph after this new dream. But then from Jacob, although he did rebuke Joseph, we do see a bit of a different reaction from him. We read that he kept the thing in mind. He's at least thinking about it. He's at least considering the possibility. But what does it mean that Joseph will rule even over Jacob? Well, time will tell. But after all this growing envy we see surrounding Joseph and Jacob's favoritism towards him, we come to the second point, the result of all this, which is the enmity in verses 12 through 24. We see that the brothers depart to tend sheep in Shechem. Now you might remember that Shechem is not a place that has been associated with good things in the history of God's people in Genesis. It was in Shechem where Dinah was defiled and Jacob's sons committed their blasphemous and murderous treachery. It's something of an ominous sign as the next stage of this story unfolds that it's going to pass through Shechem. And once again, we see that Jacob is putting Joseph in a position of authority and preference. He doesn't go with the brothers initially. He's not there the whole time doing the work the whole time. He gets sent to the brothers later to check up on them, to judge them, and to return to Jacob with a report. Now at this point, Jacob either doesn't know or doesn't care just how bad relations have become between Joseph and his brothers, such that sending Joseph to them would be dangerous. Again, we have Jacob's passivity, his disinterest in the family situation. A conflict that has gotten this bad in the family would be the father's business to know. But Joseph is sent. He goes to Shechem. His brothers aren't there. An unnamed man there tells Joseph he needs to go to Dothan, a place further to the north. Now in verse 18, his brothers see him coming, given that they are shepherds given that they need to be aware of their surroundings to protect the sheep, they see Joseph coming before Joseph sees them. So much so that they actually have time to conspire and plot against Joseph. And conspire, they do. It seems that most of Joseph's brothers want to kill him. They're in a remote place. They can cover the crime up. They can have plausible deniability. They're in a place where they're going to be the only witnesses. And out there in the wilderness, accidents and animal attacks and all sorts of things of the sort happen that could kill a man. So they could get rid of Joseph and pin it on someone else. And that is exactly what they plot to do. With one exception, there is one brother who does not seem to be on board with this murderous plot. That is Reuben. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son, the son of Leah. Now, Reuben has not exactly been a model of good moral behavior either. The last time we heard from him was in chapter 35, when Jacob heard that he had had this incestuous relationship with Bilhah, his concubine. And yet, here it is Reuben alone who seems to initially oppose the plan of murdering Joseph. He proposes an alternative, basically don't shed Joseph's blood, 
come on guys, you don't really want to go through all the mess and trouble of killing him. Just throw him in a well and leave him there and he'll die on his own. Of course, they don't know his plan is to come and get him later and actually take him back to Jacob. He just can't tell his brothers that or they wouldn't allow it. So Reuben alone seems to have something of a moral compass here. He wants to spare Joseph from this evil. And they agree with Reuben and they go along with his revision to the plot in verses 23 and 24. They capture Joseph, they take that colorful coat from him and they throw him into a dry well. Again, Reuben plans to rescue him, but he can't yet. He'll have to wait. He'll have to do it later when the other brothers won't notice. But then in the meantime, something else happens. This brings us to our final point, exile, in verses 25 through 36. In verse 25, the brothers sit down to eat a meal. I guess carrying out their wicked plot, ambushing Joseph and throwing him into a well, took some energy. It also shows, though, how they're just kind of indifferent to what they've done. They basically attacked their brother, left him to die, and like, eh, okay, that's done. Let's eat, I guess. But while they're eating, they see a company of Ishmaelites coming through. These Ishmaelites were merchants. They were traders on their way to Egypt. And it is here we hear from Judah, Jacob and Leah's fourth son. Now maybe Judah was starting to have a little bit of regret as well. Joseph was a pain, he was a problem, but he was their brother, and leaving him to die in a well in the wilderness was rather cruel. So Judah, seeing this caravan, has an idea. Sell Joseph to the caravan. Sell him into slavery. This was the ancient world. Slavery was widely and normally practiced. People were bought and sold on the regular. And if they sell Joseph into slavery, at least that way he survives. But then he's still permanently out of their way. He's not going to be a problem for them anymore. And so that is exactly what they do. They sell their brother into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. And then that caravan takes him and resells him in Egypt. Now apparently Joseph was sold without Reuben's knowledge because he comes back to the pit later and finds that Joseph is gone and assumes that he is dead. And as the oldest son, he fears that perhaps Jacob's wrath will come down on him. But then the brothers come up with a plan to cover up what they have done. They kill one of the goats and they cover Joseph's coat with the blood. With the blood. And they take the coat back to Jacob. They're going to pass off to Jacob that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. And it works. They bring the coat to Jacob. Jacob knows it. He recognizes that's Joseph's coat. It's covered in blood. And so he believes their story and assumes that Joseph has died. And so Jacob mourns Joseph with an intense mourning. Now it does say something about the brothers' cruelty in that they know they're lying to Jacob. They know Joseph is alive somewhere. And yet they will just let him grieve and mourn Joseph's death all the while knowing that it's not true and Jacob is believing their lies. Not only did they have little regard for their brother Joseph, but they had little regard for their father. 
All that resentment they had for Joseph started with Jacob. He loved Joseph, cared for Joseph, gave special treatment to Joseph, while largely being indifferent to his other sons. And so his sons, in turn, were largely indifferent to him. We see here what happens when the exhortations of Ephesians 6.4 are not followed. These children had been provoked to wrath by their father. Their sin was their own, but it was also partially Jacob's. He had not properly regarded them. He had not properly raised them in training and admonition of the Lord. And if this were the end of this story... It would be yet another set of sins and sorrows in the long line of them that we have seen. But God is still working. God purposed all of this, and He's going to use all of this ultimately for His glory and the good of His people. We learn in the last verse of this chapter that Joseph was sold in Egypt, not just to any old man, but to this Potiphar. Potiphar is an important guy. He's an officer. He's captain of the guard. And God will use this situation to Joseph's benefit and eventually for the salvation of his people. But that's going to come much later after much sorrow and suffering. But I raise this point because as we reflect on Joseph and his sufferings and the sins against him by his brothers, We ought to think of them, as we prepare to come to the table, in light of Christ. Joseph is, in many ways, a type of Christ. He's an imperfect type. Again, we see maybe he doesn't exercise the most upright and wise behavior in all of this. But his sufferings, in many ways, parallel Christ's sufferings. Joseph was to rule over his brothers. God revealed in his dreams that that was going to happen. And yet his brothers in the house of Israel rejected him. Jesus Christ came as the king of Israel to rule over them forever, and yet Israel rejected him. Where we see how Jacob adorned Joseph with his coat of many colors, gave him glory, gave him honor. Well, the Lord Jesus was crowned with all glory and honor from eternity. As God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, He was worthy of all worship and adoration. Well, Joseph was sent to his brothers on behalf of their father. And Jesus came to reveal the truth of the Father to His people, the house of Israel. And how were they received? Well, Joseph's brothers, the sons of Israel, rejected him, plotted evil and murder against him. I think you can see where this is going. Jesus' brothers, his people, the house of Israel, they largely rejected him, plotted against him, eventually did succeed at killing him. We've just been through the Gospel of John in the evenings. We saw all of that in great detail. That Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, as John wrote. And at this point in the story, Joseph is good as dead to his brothers. He's been sent into exile and slavery. He's gone. They'll never see him again. He'll never reach his aspirations of ruling over them. 
Well, when Jesus was crucified, he really was dead. And his enemies thought him gone. He thought that they thought that he would never rule and reign over them. But Joseph was not gone. He was going to return. And in fact, according to the plans and purposes of God, he would provide the way that the house of Israel would be saved from a calamity to come. And when Jesus died, he was not gone. He was raised on the third day to the shame and disgrace of his enemies, but so that those who would believe in him by faith would be saved from death and hell and condemnation. So, in Joseph's persecutions and sufferings, we see a picture, we see a type of Christ's persecutions and sufferings. As Joseph will, through much suffering, bring deliverance to Israel, Jesus has, through his sufferings, brought life and salvation to his people, the Israel of God. So as we come now to partake of the table of the Lord, we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim his saving suffering for us. The salvation of which Joseph was a type, Christ is the reality. By his broken body and spilled blood on which we spiritually feed when we eat the bread and drink the cup, he has saved us. To those of you who might hear this today for the first time or you hear it and do not believe, there is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved but the Lord Jesus Christ. The call of the gospel is to repent of your sins, to believe in Christ, to receive and rest on him as he is offered in the gospel. But to those who belong to Christ today, let us remember him and rejoice in him and feast on him by faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in Yet another instance in the history of your people where there is much darkness and sin and evil, that you show forth your mercy and you show forth your gospel. Through these imperfect types and shadows, we see the glory of the perfect Son, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us, who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, who suffered though he himself was innocent and has delivered us from our sin and misery and death. Pray that you would write this gospel truth on our hearts as we prepare to come and partake of the sacraments. And I pray that we would be faithful to take the name of Jesus where it has not been heard. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.